Hello and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. This week we're joined by Sophie White, currently a visiting Leverhulme professor at the University of Leeds, but normally a professor of American studies at the University of Notre Dame. Professor White's paper, His Master's Grace, Extrajudicial Violence in Atlantic Slave Societies, explores the pervasive violence of the French colonial world. This current project grew out of Professor White's 2021 book, Voices of the Enslaved, Love, Labour and Longing in French Louisiana, which won seven awards, including from the American Historical Association and the Frederick Douglass Book Prize. Professor White is dedicated to excavating the stories of those figures whose lives would otherwise be lost to historical study. To do so, she uses innovative research methods, such as those employed in a new digital humanities project she is conducting for the Omohundro Institute of Early American History and Culture. I'll put a link to Professor White's project in the podcast description. Will Johnson, an MPhil candidate here at Cambridge, joins us for the conversation. Will researches African-American responses to racial violence in the post-World War II period, but has done work on American slavery and anti-slavery in the past. Will's expertise on violence makes him an ideal participant in this conversation. Thanks to both Sophie and Will for joining him. We hope you enjoy this episode, and I'm your host, Hugh Wood, a PhD candidate at Sydney Sussex College. So, hello, welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. It is the 20th, delightful, lovely day today, very warm, very blue. Um, so today we're joined by Professor Sophie White and Will Johnson, who is an MPhil here. And uh, Sophie's going to be talking about her paper, His Master's Grace, Extrajudicial Violence in Atlantic Slave Societies. So Sophie, if you just want to kick us off, please, and tell us where we are in the world, what's going on, what's the kind of story you're telling, um, who are the characters, what are the arguments that you're making, um, and how does this paper fit into your wider project? Thank you both so much. I'm uh, excited to give the paper and to have this chance to talk to you. The paper and the larger project is on extrajudicial violence in Atlantic slave societies, 18th century. My particular focus is on the French Empire. I have worked extensively on Louisiana, but I've also looked at archives in the Caribbean and in um, Indian Ocean. So that is the anchor for the project I'm working on. I wanted it to be comparative and I'll say a little bit more about that. So I am hoping to look at both French and British slave societies as I progress. And I have reasons for doing that beyond being interested in a comparative angle. The core archival corpus is an extraordinary one that I have worked on for many years. It consists of court records in which enslaved individuals testified and French colonial courts allowed them to do so, especially the ones for Louisiana, slightly different rules for the French Caribbean, um, but also in Mauritius, they're allowed to testify in criminal cases where they're defendants, so where they've been accused, where they might be bystanders or witnesses and occasionally it also allows them to testify as victims, but it happens more rarely. So we have this extraordinary archive for the French colonial regime in Louisiana. We have approximately 150 individuals who testify who are enslaved, most of them of African origin, some of them Native American. In these archives, which I've worked on for years, they are, of course, judicial archives. 
they deal with judicial violence in the form of sentencing, punishments, and um, and then we could get quite technical about French law, but sentencing is part of judicial torture, for example, is a sentence. So that runs through as a thread and, and, and inevitably does. It's a court record, it's a criminal investigation, there is sentencing, there is reference to the violence that will emanate from that. And I worked on this on my first book, Voices of the Enslaved, Love, Labor and Longing in French Louisiana. As I was working on that project, I realized that also running alongside and parallel with these references to judicial violence were an awful lot of references to extrajudicial violence. So we're getting at extrajudicial violence through the prism and through the lens of judicial violence. And so I really wanted to try and tease those differences. And some of them are to do with the right of the king and the courts to uh, enact violence. Um, and it is, and I will talk today about um, the, the law that sort of distinguishes between what is permissible and what is not permissible to subjects, to slave owners, to overseers. And there are some strict rules about that. What do we find when we find these references to extrajudicial violence? We find, or I find, that they're, they're often mentioned just almost as if in passing, as if it's just something very ordinary, very, uh, if not a daily occurrence, something that is very regular, that is ubiquitous. And so we get a very strong sense in this testimony by enslaved individuals that the level of violence that they are subjected to by their slave owners, by overseers, is just a very regular thing. And we have within the, the testimony that they give quite a lot of detail about the forms that that violence can take. So it is a trove of information about violence and I will keep coming back to this, given by enslaved people in their own words. This is, this is their perspective and their way of presenting this. Also, um, something that emerges and that I became aware of and wanted to explore further, is that while they might often describe the violence that is, um, th that is um, perpetrated against themselves, more often than not, they are interested in talking and airing and voicing their feelings, because it's often quite emotional, their feelings about the violence that's perpetrated against their loved ones. So again, through this source material that is just, you know, archival court records, we find enslaved people expressing their feelings and their emotions about the people in their lives, the people who matter to them and giving their reactions to the violence that they are witness to and that they are forced to witness and see on a regular basis. And we get, again, a sense of, of how they feel towards that. Maybe I'll stop there. Well, no, the, the, the final prong, which suddenly hit me a little bit later than realizing this amazing archival source, and this is the title of the paper today, is that we also find these 
Um, while we have this violence, which is physical for the most part, some of it is psychological as well, we also find a role for a sort of, um, uh, uh, a role for negotiating a punishment that is not involving physical punishment. And it is this sort of what in French they're calling asking for the master's grace. Um, and the word grace in French, if you would translate it, it covers both pardon, mercy, clemency, those types of things. But the word, of course, is, you know, uh, has its own resonance. And so we have all of these uh, instances of masters or slave owners offering grace and enslaved people finding usually intermediaries to ask for that grace. And so the paper today is going to be focused in particular on that. And the reason I'm so interested in the comparative aspect is that we seem to find that sort of language and the sort of rituals involved with it, not just in uh, Louisiana, but in other colonies of the French Empire. And I think um, quite commonly also in British colonies. That's great. Thank you. So the court documents seem to be the foundation of this particular project, as with your last one, Voices of the Enslaved. Um, are you drawing on any other sources? I know before you've looked at material and visual culture. Will you be doing that again here? I, um, it's always hard for me not to do anything on visual and material culture because, I mean, my, um, one of my main reasons for going back to that kind of evidence is that it is particularly useful lens for understanding people who are not literate and are not leaving written sources. At the same time, everyone uses objects and, and, and ascribes meaning to objects. So not just the illiterate, we can look at everyone for, uh, for information uh, about how they feel. I am not sure what shape that will take with this book. I, um, I think it could be to do with sites of sites of um, punishment and violence. And that would be one of the areas that, that it could open up. Um, in terms of the archival sources, I've worked on the trials for Louisiana. I am for this book uh, working more systematically on the ones from the Caribbean that survive. I want to look at the ones from Canada. And when I embark on the British colonies, there we have a different kind of source material. We don't have so much the, the testimony of enslaved individuals, but we might have um, slave narratives, those autobiographical slave narratives or freedom narratives, if you want to use that word, um, as well as um, planters' accounts and, and that kind of evidence, which we don't really have so much of for the French Empire. So, and, and when I work on these judicial archives, um, you know, I have those, but then there's so much other work that has to go behind it and all sorts of other documents that I have to mine in order to, to reconstruct the, the world I'm trying to describe. And so in this case, I am looking at, um, I'm looking at religious penitentiaries um, from the you know, medieval period onwards. I'm looking at Roman law and slavery in ancient Rome since um, French slave codes um, draw a lot from Roman law. And, um, and I'm looking at, I'll be looking at apprenticeship contracts, um, servant master relations in, in the old world and seeing what conventions there might be there for asking forgiveness, as well as also looking at um, legal jurisprudence. Yeah, thank you very much for that. So just so we're kind of sticking with the methodological questions, um, what is the kind of 
thing that you're hoping to gain from using this large Atlantic framing versus, say, sticking with one specific location? Um, and what kind of literatures are you looking to intervene in here? Is there kind of an interpretation of this same time and these same events um, that you think you're or think you might be arguing against, um, for example? I am increasingly drawn to doing comparative work while realizing it's really hard to do, both in terms of time, finding the archives, getting to know the archives. And it's one of the reasons why I like to do conferences. So I'll be, you know, hopefully organizing an on, uh, a conference that will look at the, allow me to sort of grasp the, the British and the French slightly, um, slightly better. And um, the other aspect that I'm interested in that I haven't mentioned yet is, is exploring West African protocols for um, I'm interested in West African, and, and there we have to be careful in terms of which regions we're talking about and, and which, which particular groups and which judicial systems, but how justice system works there and therefore how extrajudicial system works. What are their protocols for asking for forgiveness, for having intermediaries, because I'm sure this comes in. So what is the worldview of those enslaved individuals, especially those born in West Africa as they arrive, or West Central Africa, as they arrive in Louisiana and confronted with this different system? So. I suppose I started with a point that there are too many, I don't believe in coincidences. And when I find these sorts of protocols and performances of asking for mercy in all sorts of different places with different legal regimes and different colonial regimes, you know, what's going on there? And so this is why I'm, I'm interested in that longer history, not just of looking at apprenticeship records and other, other sort of um, power relations. Um, but also a, a longer practice to see where this goes, including looking at the religious aspect. I work on Catholic colonies, the British ones are not Catholic colonies. Is that a point of, of difference or or actually is the fact that they're both Christian sort of similar? similar? Um, in terms of broader scholarly literature, this is early stages. I tend to, as a method, um, throw myself into the archives, see what pops up, and then, and then we'll we'll deepen the the engagement beyond what I'm already aware of, of course. Yeah. Great, thank you. So, in my master's course at Cambridge, we've been talking a lot in our classes about positionality, so the relationship of the historian's identity to their subjects. Um, I was wondering how you grapple with these issues in your own work. Uh, this is perhaps less of an issue on your other project about people with red hair. <laughs> As you've noticed, I have a project on red hair and I have a redhead, um, which is also, by the way, uh, my worlds are colliding. Um, the red hair project has taken me to um, ancient Greece, where the code, uh, where they would wear um, an, an ancient Greek theater, where a redhead wig worn by an actor was code for enslaved person. So these are not entirely disparate and not as much as you would think. And it's also very much a story about othering. Um, so um, positionality, you know, from the moment we deal with um, events that took place a couple of hundred years before, and all I have are just sort of fragments in archives, there's already a sort of a, a taking stock of where one stands and and, um, and, and how one addresses this. Um, I, I often 
speak of the fact that I am from one of these former French colonies. I'm from Mauritius, and that has um, very much informed my um, my desire to work on these areas. Um, I think maybe sometimes it can maybe take me down the wrong path, but it makes me uh, growing up in that place and witnessing acts of racism on a regular basis and seeing the legacies of slavery close up um, certainly have informed how I think about the work I do, even if I might still slip up because I think it's quite hard um, to be aware of, of everything one should be aware of. But um, I try to be conscious of it as much as possible and to be aware, as, as the Black Lives Matter has reminded us of, of implications still today for those legacies of slavery, um, certainly in, in places I, I live and have lived in. Yeah, so I want to change tack here a bit and talk about the violence itself and um, its role in the story that you're telling. Um, so can you just kind of clarify what you mean by extrajudicial? What is the relationship between the violence... It, this violence in, in your story and the law, is it upholding the law? Is it counter to the law? Um, and what differentiates purely illegal violence from extrajudicial? What's that kind of term doing in this, in this project? So if I stick to the French, which is, which is where I'm starting, it's a new project and that's the bit I'm trying to piece together right now. Mm -hmm. um, French slave law defines illegal violence against the enslaved. And it defines it in absolute opposition to what judicial violence is. Again, judicial torture, sentencing, mutilation, death penalty. Those are exclude. Those are deemed illegal acts if carried out by a private citizen or on their orders. So, but just because a French law defines it doesn't mean that we can find the same um, simple um, uh, interpretations. And they also define what is permissible. And it is um, chaining, it is using sticks and, and ropes on enslaved individuals. I say that I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to dwell. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to dwell and I don't want us to just think in, in terms of, of the horror that that um, evokes and yet those are those are the how the law defines it and within that seeing how it is carried out deviates quite considerably from from those rules so we might have and i think some of the aspects that are often as troubling are the psychological ones the the hurting people who are loved or the threat i have a one of the incidents i'll talk about today is a threat by by the slave owner's wife against the wife of the person giving the testimony and she threatens her with an axe but doesn't actually attack her with it but threatens her with it and so you know what do we do with that one of the reasons i'm i i felt i had to do this work I don't, I don't want to, I really don't want to think about violence. And you were talking about, you, you both work on, on violence in some way, right? Mm -hmm. But when I wrote Voices of the Enslaved, which is very much a story about enslaved speaking in their own words, and it is very much a story that talks about their humanity and their insistence on, on expressing their humanity over and over and over again. But I didn't want the other aspects to be lost that 
pervading their experiences is a daily regimen of of retribution and the threats and the the blackmail that goes with it and so i felt i i had to to work on this this area the details of violence um they're often quite brief threatened with an axe um they're not very detailed but they're they they are in there and they do run the gamut mm-hmm. yeah so i just want to ask a bit more about the defining of what um slaveholders could do um so obviously this his master's grace i think you hear about like sovereignty and it's the kind of king's prerogative to hold life like the power of life and death in in his hand so is it that if they let um, slaveholders do that, that it kind of subtracts from that power? Is that where the concern is? Absolutely, Um, absolutely. Um, It is very much tied to that. And it is, you know, it is a mechanism for social order of your colonists as well as everyone else, right? So that's important. Um, And in France, as as not just France, of course, the king's king's power is divine power. Mm because he manifests divine power. So then we have this other element which gets us back to grace, pardon, mercy, all of these words that are um, inflected with religion as well, which magnifies, of course, that um, whose whose authority is, is supreme. Yeah. Okay, so um, what does focusing on violence illuminate about slave societies that other aspects of slave societies don't illuminate um and also uh you we've mentioned uh, how uh, well all three of us are looking at violence in our work um uh, and i myself am looking at uh, bombing attacks in the 1940s to the 60s in american cities um and i've been struggling with knowing how to portray it in a way that communicates the horror and distress of these attacks while also avoiding appearing voyeuristic so i wondered if you could add a bit to that well you've you've got it in a nutshell right this is the this is the challenge that we have and it's a challenge we have to take on um i think you know one of the one of the things that's helping me at the moment whether it will carry on helping me i don't know but oh my goodness the level of violence in old world societies fantastic exhibition at the British Museum Docklands on executions at the moment. If you know London, Marble Arch was the site of hanging. Um, If you think of what's going on in in France in this period that I'm studying, um, I think some um, uh, historian, uh, Maori, sort of expressed it as they have all these endless sort of religious festivals that are taking place in the same sites that executions are taking place. So there's a sort of, as well as executions, mutilations, whipping. <laughs> um, and so this the, that, that period, whether it's um, that period for for those of European origin is a, is a very violent one anyway, then it's physically violent as well as all of the other elements. What's interesting to me in studying a place like Louisiana or, or Mauritius or Caribbean is that increasingly, the, the judicial system might be the same, 
the sentencing might be the same, but increasingly in these slave societies, it is not white people who are being subjected to it. It is almost exclusively people of African origin. And that happens early on, and we can see that being manifested. So again, that comparative focus, right? <laughs> Seeing who gets, who might get um, branded in, in Paris in the 18th century versus who's gonna get, might get branded in, in a place like Louisiana or Martinique or, uh, or La Réunion. Those sorts of looking at those to, to try and make sense of what's going on in a particular place. So I suppose it's my roundabout way of, of trying to explain how, um, how I try to contextualize the violence and understand it, but also realize what it does to one group of people and how they are going to be, you know, all the cards, all the decks stacked against them and, and all of the violence increasingly only affecting them. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, again, sorry on the violence. Um... I want to think about how, well, I want to ask you about the differences um, in terms of gender, in terms of age, um, on the side of both the people doing the violence and who the violence is being done to. Are there differences between um, how male enslaved people, female enslaved people versus child enslaved people are treated? Um, is it particularly vicious against men, for instance, or against women? Um, and who in the court cases that you've got is getting to testify? Is it a split gender or is it predominantly men? Or, you know, who's who's kind of subject to the violence in, in the story? Yeah. In terms of the testimony itself, um, it's disproportionately males who testify. Um, but occasionally they're testifying about females being subjected to violence. So we get a little bit more of a, of a balance that way. Um, similarly with who gets prosecuted. Some of it is to do with outsiders versus those who are um, those who are um, yeah, let's say outsiders versus people in more established um, uh, frames who are so that the outsiders enslaved outsiders get to, to testify more or get prosecuted more because of course they have no protectors. Um, not forgetting that violence, if we take a quick peek at a slave owner, is usually not happy um, for judicial violence to be um, enacted against their slaves because branding might devalue chattel property, mutilation of the body, cutting of the ears, etc., cutting of the hamstring, which is done in court. So we have those aspects too. Um, what we haven't talked about is sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Now that is something that's almost very, very hard to get to in testimony. Very hard. So there are moments that maybe are alluding to it, but it tends to be something that isn't overtly discussed. And that would be, I, I think, probably one of the starkest because we know it's happening, <laughs> mm -hmm. but that is probably one of the starkest differences uh, in terms of thinking about gender and, and violence and what is described and what isn't. And you say that the sexual violence is being alluded to. Who's doing the alluding? Is it the defendants or is, it, is there certain language which is being used to um, describe sexual violence in a kind of way? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like euphemistically? It tends to be more contextual um, where a scene might be happening and not directly alluded to. 
Um, there is another case that I'll mention today, and actually there is no testimony by the enslaved that's direct testimony, but we have their reported words, and it's a civil case. And so it's not a criminal case, no one's being prosecuted, and in it there is an awful lot of description about sexual violence. And, um, and it has these sort of purported words, but it doesn't fall in the same category. So it really is, um, um, at this point, the clerks are required to write down everything that they hear. But of course, we know they don't always. And I think in this case, it's probably an element of um, the word pudeur in French. Um, uh, what is it in English? Not wanting to, to mention certain subjects. And I think that that is sort of adding to the, the issue. So whether they are, whether anything is mentioned or whether it never is, um, is hard to, quite hard to determine. Okay, thank you. Um, so how does your work relate to the history of capitalism and the place of slavery within it? Um, I'm thinking here about Edward Baptist's recent work, um, The Half Has Never Been Told, and the role that violence played in upholding American economic progress through what Baptist refers to as the whipping machine. Yeah. It's 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 fundamental to to that it is um and i suppose what what interests me with this project is not is acknowledging the the whipping machine and the the role of endemic violence and daily violence but also looking at all of the other mechanisms to drive as much profit as you can from the people under 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 that yoke so that you know the whole point about negotiating for for grace um and and the reason i'm interested in it is is that you know what's the end result it means that a runaway usually or someone who's committed a crime is now back in the fold where they will work again under that you know for that system so, you know, we have this so much scholarship on um, these sorts of um, daily acts of resistance, um, running away to see a family member, but with the knowledge that, you know, well, they'll come back next week, you know, that sort of process. This is alongside that, but it's slightly different, and yet it, it belongs to it. And so we have, I think, that too, and I'm not the only one in this, those informal arrangements, if you will, are just as important to upholding slavery and and its sort of economic um, role. It's why enslavers are willing to engage with uh, a runaway and grant this grace because they will get something out of it. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think we're kind of drawing to a close here. Um, so if I kind of, I've got one final question, which I've just kind of come into my head from two things that you've said. One is that violence is pervasive, it's quotidian, it's every day, um, it's happening constantly. And the second was in relation to what Will asked about material culture and your answer, which was about specific sites and spaces of violence. Mm -hmm. So what, where is this violence that you're describing happening? Is it almost exclusively in the plantation or their slave markets, slave ships? Um, is it just in the streets? And how are we linking those specific spaces to a pervasive 
kind of structuring violence of, of society itself. A lot of it is within either the plantation or the household. You know, not everyone lives on plantations. Many of them live in, in towns and urban environments. Um, and it's mentioned in that context. Um, one of the one of the things that I find interesting is that there are also quite a few um, references to slave owners or overseers issuing threats. You know, if you don't do that, you know, I will have you sent to the public square to be whipped. Public square is where judicial punishment takes place. But that reference to a threat of sending someone to the public square happens enough that it, it wouldn't be repeated if it wasn't a possibility. So that people, you know, it, it, you could do it presumably then, right? You could send someone to the public square. Mm. And, and again, this is not something we would find in old regime France. So it's something very different that's happening. And that threat rests there. And of course, so we've got, so then we've got, if we think pub, you know, material culture and, and space, we've got the difference between something happening on a, in, a, in a room like this one or on a plantation where other plantation inhabitants will be there witnessing as opposed to the town square where anyone could be coming. So we've got a public, that sort of public aspect, um, which again is, is key to judicial um, sort of punishments that's being invoked and used as a as a point of threat. So I think those aspects are are probably where the material culture aspects would take me. And and who does it then? You know, is it the public execution? I mean all those questions are not I may or may not be able to answer. Yeah. Um I think we'll call it there, but that was very interesting. So Thank you very much. There's so much really to go on and I'm looking forward to the project. But yeah, thank you very much, Sophie. Thank you, Will, for, for hopping in. Thank you. Thank you both very much. Thank you. And that was Professor Sophie White discussing her upcoming project. Thanks again for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Stay well. Goodbye.